Welcome to the Biz News Power Hour, where we give you the rational perspective on business news that matters. Well, it's a Monday and another week ahead of us. Please, God, we don't have the weeks that we've had in July. Let's hope that August uh, can bring the cold, it can bring the wind, but uh, let's not bring the looters. We are, however, going to be tonight talking about a very, well, two very controversial subjects. Uh, Terence Corrigan will be joining us. He's from the Institute for Race Relations. And for about three years now, probably longer, but three years that I know of, he has been focusing his mind on expropriation without compensation. The proposed legislation by the ANC, which will allow them to steal land from people who legally own it. Of course, they'll say that it's due to history and somebody might have inherited it and hundreds of years ago it belonged to somebody else. But the reality of this is that it is legalized theft if it is allowed. It appeared as though at one point it was going to go through and a change in the constitution, but the EFF and the ANC have fallen out over the decision that they want to make on this. And we will find out from Terence Corrigan what it means and whether it's actually good news that the expropriation of uh, without compensation legislation, which um, has been very poorly viewed by international investors, is now off the table or not, or at least it's going to perhaps come through in a palatable form. And then the other controversial issue is a discussion with the Taxpayers Union of South Africa's founder, Willem Petzer. And Willem has been agitating to find ways for people to legally confront the government by not not paying their taxes, but by being more efficient in the way that they do pay their taxes. So using the laws to actually find a way of forcing government to use our money more efficiently. Fascinating subject and, uh, and a really interesting guy. So that should be interesting. And then we've got some good news. David Gemmel, who's from Moy River, ex-journalist up here in, uh, in the Highfield where we are. David Gemmel spent a night driving around in a tow truck talking to homeless people and finding out how receptive they were to blankets, that they were blankets or booze or uh, indeed uh, clothes. Uh, or food, and it's quite interesting in the half-felt winters uh, what they chose. It's a it's a wonderful story, and we'll be having that later in the program. And of course, this being uh, our partners in the UK, the Financial Times of London uh, will be giving us their insights as well on the latest news, including an international house price boom which seems to have passed us by. And that's a subject I'm going to be raising with Stephen Nathan. So we got a lot to come through in the next hour. I think you're going to find it fascinating. Brad Rock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity and the markets aren't any different. 
the daily movement in the markets mean change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by Brad Rock, the first ever needs mesh to life insurance that changes as your life changes. Well, that's quite a mouthful, isn't it, Nadia, what I was giving in the introduction there. Maybe I went over a little more than I needed to, but there's plenty, plenty to talk about tonight, as there always is. I'm sure there's lots of interesting stuff in the news as well. Yes, there is. You did even touch on it. So the ANC's aim to amend Section 25 of the Constitution to allow for land expropriation without compensation may have been torpedoed by the EFF over a disagreement on who would ultimately own any commandeered assets. In what might result in a bill being presented to Parliament without the necessary backing of either the DA or EFF, a meeting between the ANC and the Red Berets last week has ended in a stalemate, prompting the governing party to press ahead with its plans alone. It needs the support from the EFF to rack up enough votes for a two-thirds majority, but that party is insisting that the, stake, that the state take custodianship of all land, which the ANC opposes on the grounds that this constitutes nationalization and would prove chaotic for land ownership. Justice Minister Ronald Lamola, who has been leading the negotiations with the EFF, said in an interview that the ANC would now go at it alone and would seek to achieve its objective through the expropriation bill, which is also before Parliament. The bill will allow for the expropriation of certain categories of land without compensation, with the court being the final arbiter. ESCOM CEO Andre Dereta laid out a funding plan to help the company, which generates the bulk of South Africa's power from coal, to transition away from the use of the dirtiest fossil fuel. Dereta said the company is proposing a multi-lender loan facility from development finance institutions that would be paid out in segments over a number of years. Mandy Rambaros, the head of ESCOM's Just Energy Transition Department, has previously said that this transition could cost $10 billion. And the utility is considering projects that range from wind power to solar, hydropower and gas. An index measuring South African factory sentiment plunged, plunged by a record in July after a week of deadly riots, looting and arson disrupted supply chains, industrial output and demand for manufactured goods. APSA Group's Purchasing Managers Index, which is compiled by the Bureau for Economic Research, fell to 43.5 from 57.4 in June, the Johannesburg-based lender said on Monday. The monthly decline was the largest since record-keeping began almost 22 years ago. No surprise in that, is there? Well, uh, we've been through July, and as I said at the introduction, Nadia, let's hope that August is... Much better. Way better. Way better. <laughs> Justin Rowe Roberts has been watching the markets today. Justin? The JSE All Share Index was up at 69,100. In the currency markets, the rand strengthened against all the major currencies to 14 rand 39 cents to the dollar, 20 rand to the pound, and 17 rand 11 cents to the euro. Gold is down at $1,808 an ounce. A Kruger rand will cost you approximately 28,000 rand. Brent crude is flat at $75.65 a barrel, and the Bitcoin price is lower at 370,000 Rand. The producer price index jumped to 7.7% in June from 7.4% in May. This was its highest reading since February 2016, when it hit 8.1%, with fuel prices driving the increase. Consumer prices, by contrast, remain relatively muted as producers take price pressures on the chin, but with margins squeezed, they may yet pass them on to consumers. 
South African stock kicked, kicked off August on a positive note, rising to trade near their all-time highs and joining global peers in rallying as some of co- the concerns over China's regulatory crackdown eased and progress in a U.S. infrastructure spending plan aided sentiment. Telecommunication giant MTN gained after its Nigerian unit reported an increased profit and is the best-performing company in the top 40 today, up over 5%. Lastly, Chief Executive Officer of RCL Foods, Miles Daly, has announced his retirement effective 30 November 2021 after 18 years at the business, with Paul Craigshank being announced as his successor. Thanks, Justin. Interesting to see uh, quite a lot of historical issues in the news today. Uh, producer price index at a five-year high, and then the EBSA PMI uh, recording its biggest decline ever. So we are at a point in our history here in South Africa where – well, maybe it's a watershed. Maybe we are going to be looking forward to something better in the future. We have to hit some kind of a rock bottom at some point in time, given the unemployment rate and the uh, inability of the country to create wealth for its citizens. For no- Going on for 10 years now, our uh, GDP per capita has actually been flat or falling. We're going to be talking about issues like that with Stephen Nathan in just a little while. This market report was made just for you by Brad Rock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. You're listening to the Biz News Power Hour, brought to you by the team at biznews.com. Stephen Nathan is usually with us on a Tuesday, but uh, today we have you right at the beginning of the week. Nice to see you, Stephen. Uh, there's a very interesting Piece that's coming up from the Financial Times a little later in our program tonight, talking about house prices around the world in an absolute boom. It's only three countries that they monitor at the FT have house prices that have not been rising sharply during the pandemic. Uh, one of those countries is not hard to imagine because we know where we sit in South Africa. Uh, is this uh, maybe just to start off with, is it a surprise to see that in the pandemic, with more people perhaps working from home, that house prices have been rising, and particularly in the United States, where often they're selling those houses for more than the than the asking price. Uh, yes, I think you know intuitively the sort of knee jerk reaction is yes, it is surprising because I think COVID, uh, you know, we expected uh, uh, a lot more of an uh, of a negative economic impact globally. And we, you know, we haven't seen that. And to the credit of central banks, it's really been the proactive nature of central banks that have, uh, you know, aggressively supported the economy. Uh, you know, and, and, and one can't underestimate how aggressive it's been. It's been unprecedented. Uh, and, and, it, and it's, and it's worked. You know, so what it's done, uh, one of the, one of the big impacts is that it's lowered interest rates globally. So interest rates are much, much lower. And the vast majority of people who take out, who, who, who buy a home have to finance that via a mortgage. So it's kind of the lower interest rates are, the more affordability you've got. So, you know, your money stretches further. So when interest rates fall, you can, you can afford, um, uh, to buy a more expensive property for the same, for the same monthly repayment. And, and we know that interest rates are at, record record lows um also i think what's important with interest rates is sort of the bank margin so in south africa although our interest rates are at uh, sort of record lows certainly lows over the last 50 years we have a repo rate at three and a half percent so that means that the commercial banks can borrow from the reserve bank at three and a half percent 
But the banks have a high margin. They put on another 3.5% to get their prime rate. So, you know, if you look uh, globally, those bank margins are also very high. So there's a bit of a double whammy that we have in South Africa because we've got high bank margins uh, and we've got much higher interest rates than they have uh, and they have elsewhere. And even, even if you look, for example, at the UK and the US, they have what we call negative real interest rates because inflation is higher than interest rates. So it's actually very positive to stimulate uh, demand for housing. And also what we've learned sort of in the, in the pandemic is that people's homes have become more important because your home is not just a place where you live. It's, you know, it's become part of your work life as well. So, you know, you've had people sort of trading up, uh, 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 you know, buying bigger properties. Um, so that's also been, that's also been positive for it. So, you know, unfortunately, uh, in South Africa, we haven't, we've, we've, we've missed out on that. Uh, because I think in addition to not having the benefit of, of, of low interest rates, also the sentiment in South Africa is not great. Uh, you know, so, so, you know, uh, property transactions are not buoyant, whereas internationally they're very buoyant. And, and, and also the government's done uh, other things to help. So, for example, in the UK, quite shortly after the COVID, um, when, it, when it first hit, uh, so probably around about April, May of last year, the government reduced property tax. They had a transfer tax. So they had a sort of a moratorium to stimulate the market. You know, and I think that's something we really lack in South Africa is a is a is a is a proactive uh, uh, monetary policy to to help the economy get back on its feet. Um, another thing that's also quite interesting is that in the U.S., uh, when you borrow for a uh, for a home, uh, you actually get your interest is tax deductible. Uh, so that's another incentive because the U.S. they're very uh, pro home ownership, and it's it's a it's a st- statistic that they watch very closely. Uh, and it's something that they promote. So they've got, uh, you know, a lot of incentives. They even have the government, uh, uh, what they call government-sponsored entities. So we might have heard of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, uh, which which actually buy these mortgages. So there's a lot of sort of facilitation to 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 get that going. It's generally a a uh, you know an attractive market for the homeowner for the buyer. And COVID has has on top of that, uh, you know, created much lower interest rates and some also some more tax incentives along the way. That's very interesting. The point of trying to promote home ownership, trying to get a bigger middle class is something that we've completely missed in South Africa, perhaps because of political ideology. But a bigger story to all of this is the value of South African assets generally. Magnus Haystek has been going to town on this story for a while now, saying that not only is our GDP per capita falling, in other words, that we are our economy is growing slower than the population growth in South Africa, but that the value of our assets in global terms has also been declining. How serious is that? Do we really need to worry about that, given that we are citizens and living in South Africa? And I guess for the majority of people in this country, you're not really going to be looking to take your assets or try and establish yourself elsewhere. Of course, there are many people who want to do that. But for most people, they're not really thinking along those lines. So is it really relevant that our uh, assets or the value of our wealth as South Africans is not keeping up? I think it is relevant. It's relevant in 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 like several several areas. I can't think of, let's put it this way, I can't think of a reason why it would be a good thing. Um, so, so, you know, so let's say why, you know, uh, why, why could it be a bad thing? Um, you know, uh, um, having an asset 
is really important because you know previously we've spoken about just the the social impact. I mean, if you have if you have an asset, then you have something to protect. Protect you have something to fight for, uh, and we've seen that in the insurrections and the uprisings. You know, people that had something to fight for, like the taxi industry, for 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 example. So so having an asset is really important uh, from for 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 social stability and as you say, creating a middle class. But it's very important uh, for for progressing in society from a financial perspective because you know if you have an asset then you can borrow uh, against that asset to buy another asset or to invest in another asset I mean, a classic example would be would be a home you know if you if you if you want um, uh, if you want to get a home loan you have to have a deposit so you've got to be able to you know that could be 20 percent uh, of the value so you've got to be able to get that money somewhere and that could be an asset that you've had you know maybe you build up an asset uh, uh, some kind of uh, an investment portfolio and you use that but if you've got a home uh, and then and then you've you've uh, paid down a portion of your bond then you can access a portion of that bond and maybe invest a little bit in the business or maybe you know uh, 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 take a portion of your bond to fund your child's education, uh, or maybe to, you know. And so, so it's it's critical to have an asset, uh, uh, but relative, to, to, yeah. relative to the rest of the world. And I think this is really the. Uh, I, I don't think anybody could argue with you what you've just said now. But is it important that South African assets keep track with those of elsewhere in the world? Uh, I'm being devil's advocate here. I do know the answer, well, you know, but, but let's get your I, thoughts. I mean, I guess, yeah. Listen, it depends. It depends what you mean elsewhere in the world. I mean, uh, you know, because because you know, these things are quite difficult to measure. So, for example, you know, one of the things you would look at is you would look at uh, sort of sort of household wealth to GDP. You know, and you can say we can we can, we can compare that around the world. And the US has always been right at the very top of you know the 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 uh, the household uh, or the the household assets uh, to 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 GDP. So so you know if you look generally speaking, the 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 most prosperous countries uh, tend to have the highest uh, the highest wealth levels relative to GDP. So it is important not because it's a competition between you know who's the you know who's the wealthiest uh, country, but it's you know you know who has the most Financial resources uh, to uplift society. Now, not saying the U.S. has done it the best job, because in many instances uh, they 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 they're very wealthy, but they also have quite a skewed income. Um, but it certainly gives you much more flexibility because the bigger your wealth, bigger the more wealth there is in a country, then the more people will spend, so that will lead to higher GDP. The more GDP in a country, the higher the taxes for the government uh, to spend uh, and to hopefully to spend that uh, fruitfully. So you know it it. It is important, but the relative, the, you know, the relative is hard to do. But you know, for example, in South Africa, we have very high inflation. Uh, so if you compare us to the US, you know, we have inflation, you know, five six percent, and that's relatively low because sort of fifteen years ago it was at almost ten percent. Um, but in other countries, you've got very low inflation, one two percent. Now, what happens in a high inflation environment is that even if your your, your assets, let's say we it's, let's say we have a five percent inflation, and let's just say your assets go up by by uh, by five percent, so they're not growing ahead of inflation, but you're actually taxed in nominal terms. So so you know that would be bad because you're actually paying more tax because tax actually works in a nominal environment, not a real environment. Uh, and you know so 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 you know, the point being is that uh, 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 is that you want to have an attractive uh, environment where asset prices go up because. If I've got a business or a property, you know, I'd like to sell that at, a, at, a, at some kind of profit, and then that'll motivate mm. me to invest more. And well, more. It, yeah, the investment uh, you, you sacrifice to build wealth, and if 
there is no benefit of your sacrifice, you stop sacrificing and then you don't create jobs. And that, well, you take your that money offshore. You, As an example, you might take yeah. your money offshore. You might say, you know, and obviously, you know, Magnus has been quite strong, strong on that, but you might say, well, you know, uh, and, and, and we need investment to create jobs. So, you know, you know, you want to create an attractive investment horizon for everyone to benefit from. Mm. Uh, Stephen, uh, the the whole story about, and that really flows quite well into a conversation that we're going to have in a little while with Terence Corrigan, who's been banging the drum against expropriation without compensation. Uh, this this policy that the ANC and the EFF have been collaborating on to change the constitution so that they effectively can steal from citizens. Now there's been a bust up between them. The EFF wants uh, one wants more than the ANC is prepared to deliver. And I guess those who don't want to see expropriation without compensation going through are celebrating now uh, on the news that the, they aren't going to be voting together. But how important is that? Is the, the, the fact that, that we have property rights and that your property that you own uh, cannot be taken away from you by the state, as is being proposed in South Africa. Mm. Now, property rights is one of the most fundamental uh, rights for a uh, fair, free uh, and prosperous economy, both for its citizens and for uh, uh, international uh, companies and, and, and people to invest in that country. So it's almost, you know, if you had a look at the top three, uh, you know, you know, criteria, it would definitely be in the top three because who would invest in a, uh, a country, as I, both if you're a citizen uh, or if you're a foreigner, who would invest in that country uh, if there was a reasonable chance that your investment could go to naught? And if we look at what's happening in China, you know, that is, there's, there's, there's elements of that. There's elements of, of, you know, we're not being protected and maybe the investments we thought we had is actually not really an investment because it's done through some kind of a structure that might not be legal in that country. And we can see what that has done to the, you know, the Chinese tech companies in a very short space of time. And that's symptomatic. Uh, uh, you know, who would, who would invest in that country? And there's so many places to invest uh, that, you know, in order to attract capital, uh, you know, you've got to, you've got to stack up, stack up to, uh, uh, you know, that criteria that meets with a reasonable investment. Because imagine investing in a country where, you know, they said that uh, it's now public knowledge, this um, uh, expropriation without compensation, and you go in and you invest money there, it'd be very difficult to explain that to your investment committee or your trustees uh, if you were a, 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 a foreigner. So it's very, very concerning. And I think it's also, it caught a lot of us uh, uh, offside because it wasn't, it wasn't an ANC policy. Uh, and we've seen even President uh, Mbeki come out and say, no, no, this actually is not an ANC policy. And this is not, you know, this is not what the ANC uh, wanted and, and stood for. So it's very controversial all around, even within the ANC. And as you say, it seems to be that the radical, uh, the radical uh, economic transformation side of the ANC were probably pushing this agenda. Uh, and, and, it, and, it, and it's good to see that, uh, that the ANC now is not siding with the EFF, that there are differences. And that this, you know, that this is in jeopardy. Um, so, you know, that in itself is a good sign. But, you know, given given the issues we have in this country, you know, you just wish that government would focus on the imperatives uh, that are actually going to create growth and create jobs. Uh, not a lot of the side shows, I would say side shows, but, you know, certainly not a lot of the things that actually aren't going to have a positive impact in uh, the short term. In fact, they might have a very detrimental impact, um, you know, but we just need focus on areas that matter to address our our problems for all uh, for all of you know 
uh, all of South Africa. You're listening to the Biz News Power Hour brought to you by the team at biznews.com. Terence Corrigan is with the IRR and uh, has been working for some years now, Terence, uh, on bringing to the public's attention what the whole EWC, Expropriation Without Compensation, strategy of the ANC is about. We had some developments over the weekend that I'd like you to unpack for us in a moment. But, my goodness, I remember hosting a seminar uh, for you in London. Uh, when was that? Probably 2018 that, yes. uh, that you came over to London and spoke to people there. So July you've been on this journey. You've been on this July 2018. You've been on this journey for quite some time. Well, actually, I've been on it a lot longer than that, even before I was at the um, I was at the IRR. I think that uh, the question of property rights is one of the great uh, unresolved issues of the uh, of the transition. And um, when I was at the Institute of International Affairs, one of my colleagues said to me there that uh, there is no society in history that is sustainably developed without secure property rights. That actually that 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 stayed that stayed with me. And uh, yeah, I'm very happy to have uh, to to invest in the last couple of my years, a uh, couple of years of my life, um, making this point here and around the world. What happened over the weekend appears that the EFF, who were going to support the ANC and give them the two thirds majority, which was required to change the constitution, mm. um, have not done so. Maybe you can unpack what's at play here and. What might what the EFF wanted? Why the ANC said no, they wouldn't support them, and what this means now for expropriation mm. of land without compensation or expropriation without compensation right. generally? Right, right. Okay. Um, this all this all comes down to the word custodianship. Um, the EFF since the uh, since the very beginning of this round, and there have been previous attempts to introduce an EWC or EWC-like um, regime into the country. But if you go back to, the, back to I think, it was January, February 2018, when the parliamentary uh, inquiry into, into whether it was necessary to amend the constitution was introduced, the EFF's original motion was very clear that Section 25 makes land reform, et cetera, impossible, and the state must be the custodian of all land. Okay. Call this nationalization. Um, I mean, there's there's there's... There was a constitutional court judgment which kind of split hairs and said, no, well, the state's not really owning it. It's kind of holding it. Uh, but I think that, that – but, but I think for all practical uh, purposes, essentially what you end up with is, is nationalization. Okay. Um, that was the EFF's position. The ANC's position, I think, was actually quite, sympath- was actually quite sympathetic to this. Um, but the ANC, I think, is a bigger and less coherent organization than the, um, uh, than, than, than the EFF. Um, I think that while there is a great deal of sympathy in the ANC for an effective nationalization of land, I mean, someone like the Deputy Finance Minister wrote, and wrote an article that this is imperative, that land must be held by the state. Um, and it's been, it's been put, put forward in ANC documents, it's been put forward in state documents. The 2017 land audit, for instance, called for the same thing. Um, what the ANC probably is cognizant of is the following, that most of its supporters do not like this idea. This is this is a highly ideological, um, mm-hmm. highly ideological viewpoint. Um, it draws from from various strands, you know, partly from the sort of let's say 
communist uh, uh, agenda, but then also you know the the idea of the of the mighty developmental state, which you know has been in development supposedly for twenty five years. Um, the South Koreans would probably giggle at us if they saw what, what passes for a developmental state. Yeah, but never never mind. Um, so, so yeah, that that has a hold on ANC thinking, but I think that that uh, they are reluctant to push ahead too rapidly with it and uh, to be too sort of in your face. So what they, um, what I think their their goal was is to remove the constitutional safeguards that would make the, the, that would allow for uh, for challenges and to do it via legislation. I don't believe everyone in the ANC is uh, is 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 in favour of this, and I think it's probably also they they'll probably also rather not have an internal fight at this point about that particular issue, especially when it's not going to be popular. Um, but um, so I think that. Because of this impasse, it is quite possible that the constitutional amendment will at least be delayed, which I'm very grateful. I think the longer we have to um, uh, we we have to we have to apply our minds and to think about its implications, the better. I would like to see it taken off the table, but I don't think that's coming soon because I think that President Ramaphosa himself has put a great deal of personal political capital into this. Um, and I think for for the EFF, the idea that they can uh, that they can show a, a sense of kind of you know, mastery over the over the larger party is is very valuable to them. It also removes moves from their their shoulders any responsibility for what, for uh, for what happens afterwards. So I think that that for the moment we may well we may well see the 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 the, the constitutional amendment uh, stalled. Um, but I think it would take a major ideological reversal on the part of the ANC to have it taken off the table. Now with uh, focus then shifts to something else, which is the expropriation bill. Um, this is constitutionally compliant, as far as we can see, with uh, with the constitution as it exists now. But it all, but it um, expands the latitude that, uh, that that the state and its agents, and I think particularly at local government level, have to uh, have to take people's property. I mean, the most um, the most intriguing thing is it seems that you could um, issue this expropriation notice, um, essentially give a nominal amount of time, take the property then, um, even though there may be objections to the amount of the amount of compensation paid, which is not a great position to be in. You've you've, you've lost your asset, and then you want to sort of argue after the fact. Um, so I think it, sh- it, it it that that very decisively shifts the relationship and. Um, we have also heard uh, heard mumblings for, for for a number of years about the prospects of a land bill. Um, this could be something that introduces some form of custodial uh, custodianship um, into the uh, uh, into the debate. Now, the ANC's prefer, pre- preferred formulation for the constitutional amendment is cust- is that it will compel the state to um, introduce certain for certain custodianship of certain land. The big issue there is, of course, what what does that certain mean? Um, there's been some suggestion that, well, this is the phase between expropriating a, one property and passing it on. Why on earth you would need to amend the constitution to specify something that is like essentially uncon- uncontroversial? I don't know, especially the Bill of Rights. Mm. Yeah, you you, um, going, you you you. I think we're going down a bit of a rabbit hole here. When I'm looking at this as a foreign investor. Mm. Uh, is the bill that's on the uh, on the table at the moment going to be making me want to invest more money in South Africa or not? If you're talking about the about the constitutional amendment bill, um, that 
attracts a lot of attention. But the main its its main impact really is that it removes the part the prospect or it alters the prospects of a constitutional challenge. That I don't think is going to be essential for for uh, for foreign investors. What is, I think, going to be much more uh, of far, far greater interest is the expropriation bill, because whereas the constitute, whereas the constitutional um, amendment simply uh, uh, simply redefines your rights, that doesn't necessarily, you know, set up a um, a new um, a, a new system of administration or anything like that. So, you know, we would need to see exactly what happens with the. Um, uh, with the uh, with the expropriation bill before that uh, before that would become um, uh, become something you can make a firm decision on, but responding to your question directly, if I if I was a foreign investor, I would say, well, I want to I, I want to actually know what this means. Bromines and platitudes from um, uh, uh, from the president at an investment conference don't don't cut it. Um, if you um, if you do not intend custodianship, why do you put this this phrase in the constitutional amendment? I mean that's that's an obvious one. Um, and if indeed your plan is to give to give ownership and title deeds, as as uh, Minister Lamula uh, um, was saying uh, in, in in the Sunday Times, well, why are you not doing that? It is not it is government policy not to issue title deeds to people who receive redistributed land. Um, th- that's that that's not conspiracy. Look at the look at the 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 the, uh, the policy on it. That you know. The, the state will um, uh, will hold this until such time as they feel that these quote according to government's uh, uh, court papers in a recent case black farming households and communities you know have sort of proven to uh, to officials that they can that they can do this responsibly uh, Professor Ruth Hall from the uh, from the University of Western Cape who's no great fan of mine actually said about this this is the policy that says black people cannot be trusted with land now that is the that is the official p- uh, position at the moment. If we are talking about expanding ownership, which I think they should do, then start there. It was a little while ago that uh, I had a fascinating conversation with Willem Petzer, uh, an activist who was putting together a organisation, the Taxpayers Union of South Africa, encouraging a way of fighting back against abuse of taxpayers' money here. Fulham, with what happened in KZN and parts of Gauteng earlier this month, I've been wondering whether you've had a flood of uh, new people wanting to join your organization. Yes, uh, well, Alec, the new members have been steady during that time, but one thing that we did realize during the time was that people are once again tired of paying tax to a to an incompetent government that wastes tax money via misspending, corruption, and mismanagement. All the things that happened with the riots and so on actually highlighted just how the state is even incapable of performing its core duties to its citizens, not just its secondary duties like in the socialist state that we do live in, healthcare and so forth, but the very essence of what makes a state a state, and that is protecting its citizens. And the state was unable to protect its citizens during the riots. And the community members, the citizens themselves, uh, had to jump in and do that protection themselves. That being said, as we are saying at the Taxpayers Union, South Africans are absolutely tired of paying taxes into the system. And that's why we want to help pay as little as possible taxes, to put it as simple as possible.
Is that a, a and, and I've thought about you, and I was actually thinking a lot about my family from KwaZulu Natal, that's where I come from. People who were left to their own devices. We even had the chief executive of the Maritzburg Chamber of Business telling us that she had to beg the army and the police to come and defend the business operations, which they didn't do for five days. And when the army finally arrived, they didn't look after businesses. They looked after government installations. So that very basic issue, if you are a taxpayer and you're not being secured, you said you're going to be working through the courts. Is that a legal argument that can now be brought against the government, i.e. for your motivation for actually not wasting taxes? Of course, on a much larger scale, yes, Alec. But uh, what we've been working on at this very moment is we, we, we sat together, the directors, and we said to each other, we don't have as much time to build all these massive legal arguments. We need to start making a, a big difference today. So we actually started working on something where we want to help all individuals and uh, people who draw a salary, like employees, to pay as little as possible taxes. And um, there is a way that businesses and employees can work together in order to pay as little as possible taxes. And um, we want to get as many as possible businesses on, on board with this. So to explain it to you, well, before I explain to you the system, I think South Africa is a unique case in the sense that most places in the world, like America, for example, when people pay less taxes than they should, like, for example, Jeff Bezos, who didn't pay taxes for four years, and he's probably the most hated man on Twitter right now. Uh, people don't like it because they think it's unfair, because there is, philosophically speaking, a social contract between the citizens of a country and the government, where the citizens need to do to pay what is due for them, and the government or the state needs to provide what they should. Um, so people see a, a, an individual like Jeff Bezos as in breach of that social contract. But in South Africa, the shoe is on the other foot. Yeah, it is the state that is in breach of that social contract. So yeah, people want to see what Jeff Bezos and these people did in order to pay, well, basically zero taxes. And we want to educate people how to how to actually do that. So there is a way a legal way that one of our directors, Stefan, uh, who is the chartered accountant as well as the financial planner, is actually double, double qualified for both. He, in his private capacity, helped quite a few businesses to restructure their payment structure in a way w- uh, that is legally known as a, as a salary forfeit. And what we want to do is get all our members and the businesses that are also members to actually restructure their businesses in such a way that the employees pay as little as possible taxes. And to to put it simple uh, for you, what this basically means is, for example, a company can have benefits for its employees. For example, medical insurance. Now, the law is written in a much broader sense that there's much more benefits that a company can give its employees. So what we want to do in our professional capacity as chartered accountants and as our legal team, which is led by Johan Westhuizen, which is a fiduciary practitioner, put together for each business a, a unique individual plan to restructure the salary forfeit where they pay the employees less cash and more benefits. And 
at the end of the day, it will work out. The expenses will work out for the business exactly the same as it would have if they paid the expenses as a salary, but the employees will pay much less tax. And I think that is the first crucial step that we are going to work towards in the next month or two in order to get the businesses on board to start doing this. We have the team that can help them set up the structure and that can help them I'm not going to claim that I have the legal knowledge or the knowledge of the accounting to do this myself, but I've got the people within the within the organization that do have these expertise. So this will be our first step, and this will be how we make a difference immediately today. That's interesting. So you're using the law, you're using what's there at the moment, but because of the apathy, uh, perhaps, or because we haven't been that angry about paying taxes in the past, no one's really implemented it, but it's always been there. Now you are going to help them to address it. Of course. Well, actually, one of our directors, Stefan de Wett, he, he uh, worked for SARS. I might be wrong, but it was up until 1991 or 1990. Uh, he worked for SARS as a senior tax officer, and he was actually one of the senior members of SARS there that wrote many of the laws that we, that we do have today. And um, it's very complex, as in many of these so-called loopholes for very rich people. You can't really take them away because as soon as you take them away, um, the economy doesn't really function as it should. For example, uh, a person isn't taxed on capital gains on the stock market, which some people think that, you know, these very rich people should be taxed on these gains. But... It's impossible to tax a person on his own business that is growing because there's no money in the bank for him to pay taxes, for example. This is a very, very simple example. So there are many of these... No, but Philip, hang on, hang on, hang on. There is capital gains tax. I don't know what, uh, how they're informing you there. If, if you sell a share on the stock market, you make a yes, capital gain, you, you, you pay tax it. on it. Only if you sell oh, it, not, got it. Not, okay. if you, mm-hmm. not if you hold it. That's if what you I'm keep saying. holding it. But yeah. this, is just a, this is just a simple example. This is not what, what we are going mm. to be implementing within the businesses. So if you hold your share, you're not paying taxes. And the, the, then people think that, for example, someone like Jeff Bezos that increased their share or increased their wealth by $75 billion should pay taxes on this $75 billion. But they're not. So many of these so-called loopholes are written into law because that's how the economy functions. And um, someone who's an absolute expert, which I not, which I do not claim to be, like Stefan, who's our other director, can use these things to help businesses pay as little as possible taxes and actually help individuals within these businesses who are, who are employees to pay as little as possible taxes. Uh, through uh, salary forfeit contracts between the employee and the employer. And this is what we want to help businesses do as soon as possible in order to get people to save, you know, depending on their income, maybe 10, 20, 30, up until 100,000 rands in in tax money as our calculations have uh, have, uh, um, basically shown us. It's a different approach. I haven't seen any coverage of your association in the mass media, for instance, uh, how have you been getting the word around? Well, basically through my social media and basically the people who follow me thus far, we've got an email list, a, a WhatsApp broadcast list, a Telegram group. So it's um, viral. 
It's completely viral. I mean, we've got about 25,000 members right now, and we have been very silent for the past month and a half, two months, because we have been putting together the system that I'm talking about right now in the background, and we've also been building our call center in the background. So as soon as we are ready to publicly launch this, I'll make another video on YouTube. I guess will go viral, especially when I tell people, listen, if you are a employee that gets a salary for a living, then you uh, can pay much less in taxes if we help you and your employer implement these structures within the company. This interview is brought to you by First Rand. This is Linda von Tolberg for Biz News. First out, the largest tow truck company in the Southern Hemisphere has an annual blanket drive in the winter to hand out blankets to the homeless and street people in Johannesburg and Pretoria. David Gemmel, an author, he wrote the book Joost, Man in the Mirror, about rugby player Joost van der Westhuizen, was invited by the founder of First Help, Clinton Spurlander, to join this year's early morning drive. He told business about the drive with a tow truck driver named Dougie, about the relationship that exists between the tow truck drivers and street people, and how handing out blankets to a phalanx of homeless people turned out to be both painful, because he saw firsthand how many people lived rough but pleasant as he was seeing how these hapless souls could be cheered up by a dint of a single blanket. A long time ago, I had a column in the Saturday Star, and it was on street people. And I used to interview street people, the, the beggars, the limpers, the, the little mothers, the blind people, the acrobats, the jugglers. And First Help was reading these things, and First Help was Clinton. And Clinton phoned me and he said, look, if you're really interested in street people and that, and uh, you would like to come with us on our blanket drive. And that's why I went on the first one. And it was a very eye-opening experience, you know, to drive around Joburg because if you don't look for them, you, you don't really notice the street people. But once you start looking for them, which we were doing, me and my driver, Greg's, we were looking for them to give them blankets. And, hell, oh, you just can't believe how many people are sleeping rough. They sleep under plastic sheets. They sleep under bridges. They sleep under bushes. It is just astonishing. And anyway, so this year when they were doing it again, they called me and said, would you like to come with us? You know, no obligation or anything else. Would you just like to come? And it, again, was a very edifying experience because once again, and in fact, there's even more people on the streets now because unemployment is so bad and everything else. So it was an interesting morning. So on this year's Blanket Drive, what did you find? I can't say they were more efficient, but they were very efficient this year. They had it all planned out where they were going to go. And the first year, we uh, sort of made it up as we went along. We had lots of blankets in the truck, and then we would look for people to give them to. This year was different in that they had allocated charities for us to go to. You know, in some ways, it's very depressing seeing what's going on out there, but it, it was also quite uplifting to, to know people like Clinton, and he's not the only one doing it. There's this charity, 67 Blankets. It's run by Carolyn Stain, and they give out blankets to people, and they do it all year round. But So there are a lot of people doing it and helping and that, but just being involved with Clinton and them, 
and going and seeing the people who get the blankets and just seeing the expressions and how it changes their life. I mean, just the fact they get something for nothing, it seems to cheer them up. But the blankets is what they want. I think if you offered them something, you know, between food and blankets, I'd probably take the blanket. David, so what areas did you choose to do these blanket drop-offs? What we did in the beginning was we went off to Kempton Park. I was with a driver called Dougie, and Dougie and I became friends, drove to Kempton Park, and we went to a, a homeless shelter where they put up homeless street people. I couldn't quite get from the guy who runs at Chepi what the required criteria were to get in there. But I think it, you just had to have nowhere to live and, and you know, be poor or something. I, they were looking after 32 people. And funny enough, they were all out. It was 9 o'clock in the morning. And I thought unemployed people with nowhere to live and in their shelter, but they weren't there. I said, where are they? He said, oh, no, they go out begging. And I reckon half of them were at the traffic lights trying to get money from people who come past. We did see two of them. They were scruffy and shabby in it, but we were very polite and very grateful. We gave them a couple of boxes of blankets. So that was our first stop. So we, we left the shelter, and then we sort of headed. To me, it felt like we were going sort of further into Kempton Park, just on the fringes of the sort of um, city area. And we came across, it was a very scruffy part of town, and there were a whole lot of shacks built on the pavement. And, I mean, you could hardly call them shacks. They were really rickety little structures. And we arrived there, and there was a guy sort of sitting watching us, having a smoke outside one of them. And he was the only guy I could see around that area. He, just, he was just watching us until Dougie waved a blanket at him, and then he sort of became like Usain Bolt. He just rushed, and he was at the window, and he was ready to take. And in a very strange way – People just started coming out of the huts. I don't know if he told them or shouted to them or they had a signal or what, but they all just started coming out. And there were lots of them. There must have been, I don't know, 10, 15 people. And there was a mixture. They were black, white, and mostly male. But there were two white females who just pushed their way through all the boys and, and grabbed some blankets and went back to their shacks. It was a bit chaotic. And then Dougie got them all into a queue, you know, they just seemed to listen to him. And then we dished out the blankets to each one. But then people from across the road, they saw blankets being given out. And, I mean, these were pedestrians, people going shopping or whatever. They weren't beggars. But they all started coming across. And uh, Dougie just smiled at me and I said, I think it's time to go. So we left. But there is an element of, you know, getting something for nothing. I mean, because I reckon even if they don't need the blanket, what they'll do is sell it. But there's a desperate need. There are just so many people out there. And anyway, we left there. We went to the Nkosi Haven. Now, it sounded familiar to me, but it didn't mean much until I got there. And then I met this lady, Gail Johnson, and she had adopted Nkosi. Yeah, he became Nkosi Johnson. And they set up this like halfway house for people who suffer from HIV AIDS and they support them and they give them little jobs to do and they they try and get them employed and everything else. Anyway, I met a, a girl, Lynn, who 
she very kindly made me a cup of coffee because I was freezing. And I sat and chatted to her, and she just said they live from hand to mouth looking for donations and everything else. And also, I think there's a lot of donation fatigue in South Africa because everybody needs money. Everybody wants something. And I think what some of the companies do is they specify who they're going to help. So I think First Help tries to help in Causey Haven in any way they can. And so they put them on the list for the blankets. There were quite a few trucks. They all sort of met there. There were three or four of them. There were some of the emergency trucks, which they also run, emergency ambulance vehicles. So there was a, quite a crowd there, and they were dishing out boxes of blankets, three, four, five boxes. And um, there, there were a lot of little kids receiving them, and they were all sort of enthusiastic and all neatly dressed and very polite and all wearing masks and you know, it felt like a decent situation as opposed to the one we'd been to before, which was just desperate. So we gave all the blankets to them and everything else. And by then we'd got rid of all our blankets. So we went back to the depot. So how many blankets do they hand out? On the day, they gave out 4,000 blankets between Pretoria and Joburg. First help have a 1,000 vehicles on the road, tow trucks which is staggering. I mean, how many accidents do you need for a 1,000 tow trucks? But they all appear to be very busy. Wow. Yeah, and they all well-kept. All You know, everything about that thing is so professional. So I spoke to Clinton, and I said, you know, where do you get the blankets from? Who gives them to you? And he said, no, we buy them. We buy them, and we give them away. Uh, so, that, you know, they're not giving somebody else's charity. I just want to get back to all these trucks that are on the road looking for accidents. Did you say there's a thousand between Pretoria and Johannesburg? Yes. Yeah, they have a thousand trucks between Pretoria and Joburg. Uh, I don't know what the split is. And talking to Dougie, they all have sort of a quota of how many tows they have to do a month. So they don't actually cause the tows. They just go out looking for them. And I said, do you meet your target every month? And he said, yeah, every month. Some months it's harder. By the end of the month, you're desperate for another accident. For more stories of South African success, visit the Good Hope section at biznews.com. Today is Monday, August 2nd, and this is your FT News Briefing. House prices around the world have been soaring lately. Plus, climate change is affecting what crops farmers grow, and some countries will have a hard time adapting. People are talking about aid in the shape of things like irrigation or agricultural technology transfers, providing drought and heat-resistant seeds, for example. It's a very difficult question, and you see the impacts already happening. We'll take a look at the future of food in the age of climate change. I'm Mark Filipino, and here's the news you need. From Australia to the United States and a lot of places in between, house prices have been going up. A review by the FT found that of the 40 countries covered by OECD data, just three countries experienced real-terms house price falls in the first three months of 2021. 
Annual house price growth across the OECD group of rich nations hit nearly 9.5% in the first quarter of 2021. That's the fastest pace for 30 years. Analysts say that three main things are driving the price increases. Historically low interest rates, so it's easier to borrow. Savings that people accumulated during lockdowns. And a desire for more space as people work from home. So there's a lot of demand and at the same time, not a ton of supply. Now, one economist says some short-term house price growth is a good thing for the economy. People who already own homes go out, buy new homes, and can spend more due to the rising value of their assets. But if it goes on for a while, it could turn into an unsustainable boom that could eventually push activity into reverse. Climate change is shifting the frontiers of where food is grown. Farmers and agricultural businesses are adapting to warmer temperatures around the world and more extreme weather events. Just take North Africa and the southern Mediterranean region as a huge climate change hotspot. Emiko Terrazono is our commodities correspondent. She joins me now to discuss what's going on in climate change and agriculture. Hi, Emiko. Hi, Mark. Emiko, can you describe some of the most dramatic changes in agricultural practices you came across when researching your recent article on food and climate? Yeah, Mark, so um, a lot of stories I've written in the past have been about climate change making existing crops very difficult to grow. Coffee is a good example, nuts like almonds in, in California due to water shortages, lower yields in other crops. So I wanted to look at whether there were any positive outcomes from climate change at all and found that production of tropical fruits like avocados was increasing in Sicily and other parts of the Mediterranean and the frontiers of grains grown in, in Russia and Canada was going north. Yeah, I, I think one of the most striking things about your story that I read was mangoes were increasingly being grown in, in Sicily, just a place that you never would think about mangoes being grown. Uh, you also mentioned grapes, and you say that grapes are like the canary in the coal mine for climate change. What did you mean by that? I didn't really know about how sensitive grapes grown for wine were, but um, apparently they are among the crops most sensitive to uh, the change in temperatures. So you have this clear shift you can see in areas where certain varieties are grown. In Canada, you're now seeing more Pinot Noir grown up further north, and the UK has become a big producer of sparkling wine. So you mentioned a few regions, but where are the biggest shifts in agricultural production? Wheat in Russia seemed like a pretty standout one. Yeah, and these are the type of crops that are going to impact people around the world the most. So wheat, rice, corn and soybeans, you know, these are the staples. They're now being grown further north. And I cover, you know, grains and, and oil seeds on a regular basis. But I hadn't quite realized that for Ukraine, for instance, you know, the Black Sea region, which comprises of Ukraine, Russia and Kazakhstan, they're known for their fertile soil and wheat. But Ukraine has become a big corn producer and you need heat to produce corn. Corn and soybean production in China is also moving north. So the shift is quite striking. You mentioned in your article the risk of a climate bomb. What exactly is that? It's quite scary, the phrase climate bomb. Untouched soil, which has sort of basically been, been under ice and, you know, very cold temperatures, are now opening up to agriculture. 
And often these PT soils are a reservoir of carbon, which has been trapped for uh, thousands and thousands of years. If that's cultivated and broken, you're going to release a lot of carbon. Just out of curiosity, are there any real world effects of the shift in agriculture? Like, does it matter for me as a consumer if I'm buying my mangoes from Sicily rather than, you know, wherever mangoes are usually grown? Well, growing local is not a bad thing. So if I'm in London and I'm eating avocado grown in Italy, it's going to be cheaper just because the transportation, my avocados that I usually buy tend to come from Peru or Mexico. So it's not a bad thing, but just because you can grow it doesn't mean that it's good to grow. And in the case of Sicily, some of it's tropical and the grower I interviewed, his area was a microclimate and it was a very tropical area. But a lot of the island is very dry and uh, you need irrigation, which isn't necessarily a good thing. Emiko, what's the downside for countries and producers that can't adapt? Can they make their situation better at all? So people are talking about aid in the shape of things like irrigation or agricultural technology transfers, providing drought and heat-resistant seeds, for example. But it's a very difficult question, and um, you see the impacts already happening. We've written about caravans of migrants moving from Central America up north. That's been caused partly by drought, which has made agriculture, especially coffee growing, very difficult, and they've abandoned their farms. The lack of food can cause unrest and wars, and and the destabilizing impact leads to migration. So it's a very sobering thought, and it will impact rich countries. Emiko Terrazono is our commodities correspondent. You can read more on all of these stories at FT.com. This has been your daily FT News Briefing. Make sure you check back tomorrow for the latest business news. Well, thanks for being with us today. We'll be back in your company again, same time, same place tomorrow. Until then, from the team here at Biz News, cheerio. You've been listening to the Power Hour, brought to you by the team at Biz News.